are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 19. We'll be continuing this series through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Scripture uh, encourages us, it commands us to, to weep with those who weep. So if you're a Braves fan this morning, I'm weeping with you. It also says that you should rejoice with those who rejoice. So as a Phillies fan, you can rejoice with me. Um, so I won't say anything else. I've I'm, I'm, I'm been very behaved this morning, so you should be appreciative of that. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So trying to be humble. All right. So we are going to jump into another lighthearted sermon at CBC. If you uh, are, again, a guest... I was uh, up two weeks ago, I got to speak on church discipline, and then Clint gets a cupcake sermon on forgiveness last week, <laughs> and then I get marriage and divorce today, oh, blessed be the name. Um, and so if you're here, you're like, great day, I didn't know what we're talking about today, that's why you read ahead, people. It's not a mystery where we're going to be. Uh, what's going to happen is this, Jesus, the Pharisees are going to try to trap Jesus. And once again, he is going to escape their trap. But in doing so, here's what he's going to do. He's going to give us some instruction on a topic that is not controversial per se, but is serious. And it's one that we have been, as a culture and as a church, very careless and cavalier with, this idea of marriage and divorce. Um, and so that's what Jesus is going to talk about. And let's, let's just take the, the wind out of the, you know, the tension there's, if I ask for a show of hands of how many of you in this room have, have been impacted by divorce or maybe you've been divorced or your parents are divorced, almost every hand would go up, whether it's your uncle, whether it's your own marriage, whether it's your kids, whether it's your grandparents. We've all been touched in some way by this, this idea of marriage and divorce. We just have. And it's easy to think that things all oh, back then, they weren't so bad. Now they are bad. And you know this percentage is, is divorce. And, and, and no, things were bad in Moses' time. This is why... God deals with things. Things were bad in Jesus' time, and things are today still, still bad. And so for us as Christians, the goal is that we would have a distinct view of marriage and not a cavalier view like our culture. And so Jesus is going to address that. And, and I want to I wanna encourage you before you're like, man, I need to go to the bathroom and not come back, right? Three things real quick. Number one, this is not a bash session. This is not a uh, make you feel guilty and run and go home and, and just feel how, how how awful you are and how you failed. That's not the point of this. It really isn't. Because here's the deal. We gotta acknowledge it and we gotta remind ourselves that there is no perfect people in this room. And despite what you see on Instagram and Facebook, there is no perfect marriages in this room. We are bunches of train wrecks of people. That's what we are. That's why we're here. Okay, and, and the Bible is very honest about this. This is why we should be encouraged. I mean, God creates marriage in Genesis chapter two. How long does it take for there to be conflict in marriage? Genesis chapter three. <laughs> like four verses later, Adam and Eve fall. And what does he do? He pins it on his wife. The woman did it, her fault. What, is, what does Eve do? The snake, the devil made me do it. You already have you already have conflict. And then chapter four, you have a train wreck of a family where there's two boys and one of the boys kills his brother. And a few chapters later, you got Abraham, the father of faith, who sells his wife out not once, but twice. And then he goes and marries another lady and has a kid with him, her. And that's a train wreck. 
And then, and then his son, Isaac, her, his wife, she's deceiving and lying to her husband so that the, he would bless the younger twin instead of the older twin. And you got mess there. And then you go a few chapters later, you got David and his family and the man after God's own heart. He's got five wives and a bunch of kids who are trying to kill him. So, so understand, the Bible is honest about our brokenness. And so we're here to be honest about it and deal with it. And we can't do anything about yesterday. We just can't but we can do something about right now. So uh, this is not guilt session. This is not if you've been through divorce or whatever, that you're second class Christian and you know, we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with today. Because what's gonna happen is Jesus is gonna be asked about divorce and he's not gonna really answer it. He's actually gonna flip it and say, let's talk about marriage. Forget your question. Let's talk about this. What is the intent of marriage? And so that's where we're going today. And so the third kind of thing up front, I know that there will be a zillion questions for you. And so if you, if that you have to, because we can't answer all the what ifs and what about this and what about this. If you've got questions, you can call Clint this week and ask him. <laughs> okay, he's not preaching next week. I am. So you can call him. We're not going to answer every question of the what ifs and what ifs. We just can't. This is too complex and layered of an issue. But I will say this. When we get to the intent and the heart of the matter, what Jesus is dealing with, I think it'll answer a lot of questions for us. And then if there's other questions, man, that's why we're here. Right? So let's just jump right in. Let me read our, uh, our first two verses and then we'll jump in and see where we're going today. Okay, so, so it says this. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, what sayings? Chapter 18, forgiveness, all these other things, church discipline. When he finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So what we have is, is for them, this means a lot for us. We're just like, we just read it and like, oh yeah, whatever. But they understand the geography here. Jesus has been in the north in Galilee. Here's kind of a map of where he's been. He's been in the north. That little S is his road. He's headed to Jerusalem. He is in the final stretch for the cross. All right, we're getting close to the end here. And he's been in the north and now he's working his way to Jerusalem. And you notice how it swings to your right a little bit, right? A little S curve. He is now on the east side of the Jordan River. That's where he is. And we're like, no big deal, right? Well, for for us, maybe not for them, they understand that Jesus is now in the territory of Herod Antipas. That's significant. Because remember who Herod Antipas was, right? He was the guy who divorced his wife and he married his half-niece, a girl named Herodias, who was the daughter of his half-brother who married his half-brother, which made him the half-uncle, which is all convoluted in a wreck. But the point is, he was getting called out by John the Baptist because this marriage was a sham because he left his wife and married this girl. And what happened to John the Baptist? Lost his head, right? And they understand that Jesus is in Herod's territory. So they ask him a loaded question to test him. Look what they say. The Pharisees come up and say, Jesus, we have a question. Who have a question. He's like, okay, what's your question? Is it lawful... Is it legal? What does the Old Testament say is what they're asking? To divorce one's wife for any cause. Now, they're not asking because they want an answer, right? They're asking because it's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. Like all the times before, it's a trap. Why is it a trap? Because number one, he's in the territory of Herod. What did Herod just do to the guy that called him out on his, on his marriage? He killed him. So if, if they can get him to be public, go on the record with the same thing that John the Baptist said, what does that put? It puts Jesus' life in peril. Maybe, maybe Harry will arrest Jesus and it will be done with him. That's the first trap. Second trap is this. In the nation at that point, they had two schools of thought on divorce. They had two very popular rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. 
And both of these guys had differing opinions on divorce. Rabbi Hillel, he was the more modern man that you could write a certificate of divorce for your wife for anything. You didn't like her anymore? Write her off. She, she's a bad cook? Write her off. You don't like her mother? You can divorce her and write her off. That was his school thought. You could divorce her for any reason. And half the nation was siding with Hillel. And then there was the Rabbi Shammai, which was much more conservative. And he said, you can only divorce in the case of adultery. And so you had half the nation over there. And what they're trying to get Jesus to do is come down on one of those sides. So number one, he'll split the nation. But number two, so that Herod will come after him, right? Because they know that he's probably gonna side with John the Baptist. But Jesus ain't gonna answer their question. He's gonna go not to to the when can I, he's gonna go to the intent. What is marriage about? So he says, have you not read? This is what he always says, right? Have you not read? Y'all are, y'all are referring to this random passage in Deuteronomy 24 where Moses says, write a certificate of divorce. That's where they're going. And he says, haven't you read the first book from Moses? The book of beginnings? Genesis means beginnings. Remember that book? Same author. When marriage was created, he says that he who created them from the beginning, what did he do? He made them male and he made them female. And what he's alluding to is Genesis 1, chapter, verse 27, where it says, so God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. That both male and female reflect the image of God or created in the image of God. They are distinct, they are different, but they are equal. And this is a super controversial idea in our, in, our, in our culture, but what Jesus is affirming, which is, is a truth that for thousands of years, no one debated until the last 15 years, that there are only two genders. There's male and there's female. There's XX, there's XY. It is basic biology. That's what he's affirming. And I, and I say that because we, we get lots of questions and lots of, what about this, what about this? The reason why there's so much chaos around this issue it's not a surprise, right? Paul is very clear why there is, there's chaos and debate and all these things. And he deals with it in Romans chapter one. And we don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but let me just read it to you. He says, what can be known about God is plain. Everyone gets the same, what we call general revelation, that there is, there's creation. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen. They're clearly understood since the creation of the world. And what? And the things that have been made. So you look up, whether you live in the plains of Africa or you live in Alaska, you look up and you see moon, you see stars, you see mountain, you see clouds, you see trees, you see grass. And the point is you're supposed to see that and say, there is a God and I ain't him. Something created this. You're supposed to see simple things and it's supposed to point you to something greater than you. Obvious, clear things, boy, girl that any little two-year-old boy can say, boy, girl. It is very clear. It is very distinct. So we are without excuse. But even though we know these things, what does he say? They know God, but they don't honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. They become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise. Look how smart we are. We have PhDs. We have this, we have that. But they actually become fools and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for what? For creation, for images, for mortal man. We worship the creation rather than the creator, which is what he says. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God, which is evident, which everyone knows, for a lie. And then we worship us rather than God. 
who is blessed forever. And then he goes on to say, here's the kinds of sins that happen. And you read 26 and 27 and 28, and it's like reading our, our newspaper. But here's, here's the big idea. When you reject the very obvious truth that there is a God and say, no God, God will give people over to a darkened heart and a darkened understanding, and they will believe all sorts of lies. And they will create truth, and they will say, oh, this is my truth. And that's why you have a debate over something that's clear biology and clear, just you can see it. That's where our culture is, because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, it's, it's, and it's not something to be mad about. It's not something to get all, you know, go Facebook people and yell. It's just, you need to understand why it's chaos because people deny the reality of a God. They don't want a God. They want to be God. I decide truth, not God decides truth. And that's where we're at. But that's where Jesus goes. So he says, in the beginning, you had male and you had female. And then he jumps to chapter two of Genesis. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast, the old King James says, to cleave to his wife, and the two become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So he's referring to Genesis 2. God creates Adam. He says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a helper that is suitable for him. He calls Adam to have a Sunday afternoon nap, or Saturday afternoon. No, it was a Friday afternoon nap because it's day six. Friday afternoon nap. He fashions a rib out of his side. He creates the woman. He brings the woman to him. He says, this is now bone of my bones. This is flesh. She is flesh of my flesh. She is Isha. She should be taken out of the ish, man, isha, woman, right? And then it quotes this verse. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, cling, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one. Now, you got to understand, Adam and Eve don't have a mother and father, do they? I don't even know if he has a belly button. That's another debate for another day, <laughs> right? But we don't, he does not have a dad and he doesn't have a mom. We know that. So that is not written for them. It's written for who? For us. He says, a man leaves his mom and his daddy and he clings to his wife. And now the two become one. Not two people become one people, but there's a, there's a spiritual oneness that happens at marriage. There's a physical union, yes, absolutely. Right, there's a physical relationship. But there is a spiritual union that happens at marriage that God brings together. That's why he says, therefore what God joined together. It's not the preacher that does it. It's not the judge who does it. There is a spiritual oneness that happens in the covenant of marriage that God brings together and he says, nothing should separate it. Not you, not you, nobody. I'm the only one that's allowed to separate it and I do it by what? Death, which is why you say at your your vows, till death do us part, right? So that's the idea, right? God has brought these two together so that there is oneness. There is oneness. Now, again, follow the line of thinking. Jesus asked, when can I divorce my wife? When can I get rid of my wife? When can I get rid of her? And Jesus says, what's marriage about again? What was the intent of marriage? This is all pre-fall, by the way. This is pre-Genesis 3. This is Genesis 1, Genesis 2. This is the intent before sin. It's oneness. And what, what he's trying to get the point across to them and to us is this. And this is the only point I have in today's sermon. I have one point. One point only. If you're a Baptist and you need two more points, you're going to go have to watch Charles Stanley later today because I only got one for you. Here's your point. Marriage is about God. Does it involve you? Absolutely. But marriage is ultimately not about you. Marriage is about God. 
right? And this is why we as God's followers cannot be cavalier or careless with something that is so precious to God because marriage is about him. Let me give you a couple ways in marriage is meant, it's designed to reflect him, to broadcast him, to point to him. It is about him. Here's the first way. Marriage is supposed to picture the unity and the diversity of our God. There is a oneness in the Trinity. There is one God, right? We, we worship one God. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We believe that there is one God, but we also believe, because the scripture teaches it, that God eternally exists as three co-equal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. Yet, there is one God. How in the world does that work? I got no idea, but the Bible teaches it. So what you have in the Trinity is absolute oneness, Intimacy and oneness on a level that has been eternally existent from eternity past into eternity future. There's oneness. But yet in that oneness, there is diversity. There's Father, Son, and Spirit. We see it at the baptism of Jesus. There's Jesus in the water. The Father screams out from the heavens. This is my Son. Listen to him. The Spirit floats down as a dove. And the Great Commission, go baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. So you have three distinct co-equal persons. You have one God. You have perfect unity. You have perfect diversity where each one is trying to glorify the other and love the other. And it's this beautiful picture of oneness. Your marriage, people who are created in the image of God, male and female, is meant to be a picture of the unity, the oneness, but yet there is diversity. She is male. She is male. She is female. He is male. He is masculine, she is feminine. There is even a biological component, they are compatible. General biology, they are compatible physically, why? Because he is male and she is female. It is meant to complement one another. And it is a beautiful picture of who God is. This is, by the way, another controversial subject in a rabbit trail, but gotta go there. This is why same-sex marriage is not biblical. Because it's not unity and diversity, it's unity and unity. It's the same. They don't complement each other. They are the same. And it is not a picture of what God is trying to picture for us in the gospel and in the Godhead, where I have oneness absolute, but I have diversity absolute as well. And we are supposed to, to be one as two who come together. And this is the challenge, is it not? I mean, oneness in marriage. That's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, it's easy on the day you say I do because you're about to go to Jamaica and then lay on the beach and have a grand old time. Five years in, oneness is a challenge. 15 years in, with three little ones running around and a minivan that smells like throw up, it's a lot harder. Right? But we are called to fight for oneness. Why? Because it pictures God who is one and we are made in his image. That's the first way it points to him. But there's another way. And Paul builds on this in Ephesians 5. Right? When he says this, he quotes the same verse Jesus quotes. He quotes Genesis chapter two. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, what mystery? Marriage. It is profound. All right? And we're all like, yes. He said, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Marriage points to God because marriage is supposed to be a walking declaration of Jesus and his church which is way convicting, is it not? Because when you ask yourself, does my marriage picture Jesus in his church? It's tough. Where the man, Ephesians 5, very clear, 
says that you are supposed to love and lead and protect and purify like Jesus does. And, and, and ladies, as the wife, you're to come alongside and bring strength and partner along your husband as the church does along what Jesus is doing in this world, right? That's challenging. He says, but what our marriages are, the intent from the beginning was this is supposed to be a walking picture of the unconditional love within the church and within, within Jesus' relationship with his bride. That's what it's supposed to be. That's hard. Can we be honest? That's a challenge, right? And there's actually a third intent of marriage. It's not in this text, but when you go to Genesis chapter one and two, you see the guy says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? There's, there's a natural, uh, natural, just children are born in, a, in an environment where that's possible. And I realize that sometimes because of the fallen nature of man and, and, and uh, just the world we live in, that there's challenges with children, right? And, and some of us can't have kids, which is tragic, which, which is why adoption and these options, fostering are, are, are huge for us because we can still there. But part of the creation mandate is, is be fruitful, fill the earth, have kids, right? Ultimately make disciples who are gonna make disciples. So you wanna have children. And the goal is for your kids just a reminder, it's not for them to get into Harvard or Georgia Tech, great schools. But who cares if they go to Harvard and they're a pagan? The point is that you would raise your children to love and know God so that they would raise their children to love and know God and that they would raise their children to love and know God. And so we're filling the earth with people who know and love God. And if you step back and think about this from even a grander kind of perspective, the family and the church basically are two of the same, they have the same goals. What is the church? Are we supposed to be one as the church? yes. Are we supposed to preach the gospel as the church? Yes. Are we supposed to make disciples as the church? Yes. The family, one, gospel, make disciples. The family is just a microcosm of the church. But that's where Jesus goes. He goes to intent. Jesus, when can we leave our wife? When the Trinity is no longer one. Jesus, when can I divorce my spouse? When Jesus no longer loves his church, when he's abusive, when he's cruel when he's unkind. Jesus, when can I, can I, can I just pull the, the parachute and get out? When the church is no longer supposed to make disciples. That's where he goes. That's the intent. Because think about it. What does divorce do to all three? What does divorce do to oneness? What does divorce do to the unconditional love in the gospel and forgiveness? What does divorce do to kids? Some of you know. It's devastating. Right? damages. It tears, it's a tearing apart of, of two souls, right? And so Jesus goes to intent so that we would see how high and valuable marriage is in the sight of God, how precious it is, right? Marriage is not about us. It's not about, you know, and this is going to be shocking to somebody, marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness, I often, you know, when I get couples in and I always ask them when I'm doing the premarital, first question I always ask, so why do you want to get married? And she always answers first. Actually, sometimes she'll look at him and expect him to answer first, but he won't. So she always answers first. She's like, oh, I just, I, I love him so much. I can't imagine life without him. He's so sweet, my best friend. All good things, right? He makes me so happy. And I usually will jump on that language because I'm like, that's awesome. But what if he doesn't? Because I can tell you right now, he's he, he gonna not make you happy at some point. I can promise you. And it's gonna be about day two of the honeymoon, if not before. 
Because it's not about your happiness. And if you pursue happiness, you will be lost. Because no one can carry that weight. No one can carry the weight of worship in essence. It will come crashing down. But here's the thing. If you pursue holiness, knowing God, reflecting God, oneness, the gospel, making disciples, you will end up happy as a result because you cannot be in the middle of the will of God and not have joy. And so pursue holiness. And this is important for some of us who are in a, in a, in a situation in the, in the, right now in their marriage that's tough. And I get it. Because all of us have been in times when things are rocky and there's more conflict than others. All of us who are married have got that. So understand that you are not alone. But in that moment, you've got to ask, what is God doing in my heart? How is he trying to make me more like Jesus? Not asking the question, how can I pull the parachute? How can I get the ejection handle, Maverick? Right? That's what we're not, we don't want to be asking. Right? And so he goes to the intent. And so the Pharisees, they get it. And they're like, well, then... Why did Moses command one to give a certificate? Which is not true because Moses never commanded anyone to write a certificate. If you read the passage you're alluding to, Deuteronomy 24, it's this random passage. I mean, it's so random. It basically says this. If a woman marries a man and he finds some indecency, which we don't even know what indecency means there. If he finds some indecency in her, he can write a certificate of divorce. And then if she goes and remarries another guy, and he dies or he divorces her and writes her a certificate of divorce, she can't go back and marry groom number one. That's the passage they're talking about, right? And if you go back to why is that even in there, it's because divorce has been running rampant amongst the people of, of God and God is, is regulating through the law to protect ultimately the women because what happens in that day, if a woman's husband just divorces her, where does she go? She can't go to, to Georgia Southern and get her degree and get a job. She is destitute. She is alone. So Moses was allowing her to get remarried so that she could be protected and provided for. And what they're doing is taking a passage that was aimed at correcting, I mean, at protecting women. And they're now taking it to the next level to abuse it and say, how do I get out of this wedding so I can marry her? How do I get out of this marriage? They're looking for an excuse to get rid of their spouse from a passage that's aimed at protecting the women in a male dominated culture. And Jesus is rolling his eyes saying, that is not what that's about. He said, this, the reason that's even in there is because of y'all's hard hearts, right? But that's not the way it was from the beginning. Look at it, again, he uses that language. That is not how it was from the beginning. What was the beginning? One, gospel, disciples, that's the intent. That was what we're about, right? This was just a concession to protect these ladies. And this is because of your sin. It's not what he wants. It's not his desire. And then he says this very, and this is a strong statement, y'all, but we got to read this and understand. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I say to you, who's the I? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who created the universe, the one who created marriage, the one who will rule and reign forever and ever. He says, listen up. Here's what I say. You want to know the answer to your question? Here it is. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, for porneia, and he marries another, he's committing adultery. He says, here, you wanna know the when of the out clause that Jesus gives? He said, if the marriage bed has been defiled, if there's been, if there's been an affair, there's been sexual immorality, then, then I'll, I'll allow the divorce, the covenant to be broken. But other than that, if you, if you, oh, I just don't like her anymore. Oh, we just don't get along anymore. Oh, they're, they don't, you know, they're not the same. You all oh, reconcilable differences and you go and remarry. He said, that's adultery. That's strong. Can we be honest? And you can play Greek games and, you know, everyone wants to have an opinion. Jesus is clear here, right? He's clear. And even in the case of adultery, 
We, we would say, and Jesus would say, isn't it interesting? What did Clint preach on last week? Forgiveness. That's the context of this going on here. How much have you been forgiven? Billions. How much is owed you? A couple grand. How are you gonna not forgive a couple grand when you've been forgiven billions? Isn't it interesting that this passage is in the middle of that context? And I'm not saying that's easy because we've worked through it with several couples and it is devastating. But it doesn't mean it's impossible. He's not saying you have to. He's saying it's allowed there, but we would encourage, let's, let's work through forgiveness and building trust and, and building that again because it's a tearing apart of souls. And Paul will add one other exception. He says, if a non-Christian is married to a Christian and the non-Christian is willing to stay married to the Christian, stay married, right? But if the non-Christian says, I'm out, I can't deal with this Jesus anymore, you can let him go. You're not under bondage. That's what Paul says. He adds that. Now we can go into, what about abuse? What about these things? What about all the, and, and that's legit. We don't have a verse on abuse. Here, here's what we would say. If there's physical abuse going on, don't call a lawyer, call the cops, number one. Call the cops and get out, right? And come talk to us and, and we, we've dealt with this and, and we're, never, we're never gonna say, you need to go live in an abusive, we're never gonna say that. We'll work with that, right? We'll work with that. This is why I say it's not, for what we do as elders, it's not a one size fits all. It's just a black and white. We, we work case by case with people. But the last, last effort is, is divorce. That's the last place we wanna go. Why? Because, because the, when, when there's reconciliation and restoration, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church. Hose, read the, the story of Hosea, where Hosea marries a prostitute and she runs off and he has to go rescue his prostitute wife and he has to pay for her to buy her out of her slavery and bring her back into his home. How many of us would do that? None. That's what God does for us. That's the model for us. And that's challenging. But that's the, the, re, y'all, the reason why I, this is a hard text to preach and the reason why the air is a little thicker, even though it's a little cooler outside, is because, let's be honest, we've been cavalier with our marriages, haven't we? And we've been, we've been careless. I mean, if, how many of us honestly could say, yeah, I'm pursuing oneness with my spouse all the time? And I'm, I'm forgiving and I'm loving like Jesus loved the church and I'm respecting like the church respects Jesus all the time. And I'm discipling my kids like mad and pointing to them Savior all the time. The reason why this is a challenging passage is because we all fall short of the glory of God, right? That, that's why I said, is we're not coming in here trying to guilt people. We're saying, hey, let's get a refresh and start from today on, no matter what happened yesterday, and let's own our deal. And that might mean for some of you, Maybe you're on your second marriage. Maybe you're on your third marriage. Maybe you recently went through a divorce. Maybe it was for biblical grounds. Maybe it wasn't. But here's what I would encourage you, that you still need to repent of sin. I'm not saying if you're on your second spouse and you got divorced 20 years ago, oh, do I need to go back to old boy? No. But I am saying you should own that and repent of that sin. And you might need to write a letter or have a phone call. Like I was, I was a knucklehead. And I'm sorry. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ right now. And he has forgiven me of that sin but I need to tell you I'm sorry because I was wrong. That's repentance. Right? That's what it looks like. So, you, so, so maybe some of us need to do that. I, I don't know where you're at because we have folks all over the map, right? We got folks on third marriages. We got folks that want to be married. We got teenagers. We got college students that are like, do I want to get married? And that's what the apostles go, by the way. They're like, uh, if such is the case, Jesus, maybe it's better not to get married. That's what, that's what can you imagine that? James and John are like, whoa, Peter's married. I don't know, man. I don't want to do this. And you would think Jesus would be like, no, 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 guys. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to encourage you here. 
right? No, marriage is a great thing. Come on, everyone, I want all 12 of y'all married. You would think Jesus would say that. What does he say? Yeah, not everyone can take that though. Not everyone can receive that saying. That's a true statement. But only those have been given. Why? Not because marriage is bad, because marriage is serious. It's big. It's precious. It's not something to be cavalier about, right? This is why the apostle Paul says, look, if you marry, great. If you don't, great. Now, Paul's like, I wish everyone was single like me. And why does he say so? Because it's, if you get married, you have worldly troubles. That's probably why Paul didn't ever got married because he called women worldly troubles. I don't know, maybe. But, <laughs> but we get this, right? If you're a single dude, a single gal, and we say, hey, who wants to go to Africa next fall? I got two weeks vacation. I can go to Africa. You got three kids at home, two dogs, a job, all these things. I'd love to go to Africa, but I can go to Africa. I gotta go to Gulfstream. That's my Africa. I can look at pictures. Why? Because you have a mortgage and you have this. When, you have, when you're single, there's, there's flexibility. All the guys know that when you're going on a weekend trip, let's be honest, you can stay at any hotel that comes up on Trivago, any hotel. Look, $29.99 a night. Yep, we're in. You and your buddies are in that hotel. You know there is not a dog's chance that your wife would stay at that hotel. <laughs> if it's under Marriott, we ain't going. Why? That's called worldly troubles right there. I got $29 a night or $2.99 a night. And it's, it's just the reality of if you have a family, you have to care. That's your responsibility. And it's good. It is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift. If you desire a wife, you desire a good thing. Family is a gift. But here's the thing. So is singleness. Singleness is a gift too, which is why he says there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Who said, I'm gonna remain single and celibate so that I can invest the lion's share of my life for the kingdom of God. He says, that's a gift. Not everyone gets it, but some people get it. And some people get the gift of marriage. Whatever you've been given, the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness, you what? To glorify God in that, right? And that's what the disciples, most of them end up doing. But the point again is, there's a high, high calling. Marriage is a high calling. Marriage is insignificant. Marriage is precious. And I got it that we got folks all over the map here with pasts, with presents, with futures, right? And, and we always come back to the gospel and hope, right? Because God is good and he wants to restore and he wants to reconcile. So let me just give you just a couple quick thoughts and then we'll sing. And these are in any specific order. And we could talk about marriage we could do for years, right? And we got resources available. There's some great books on marriage, great series on marriage. We got folks that would love to walk alongside you if you're, you're challenging pastors or just couples. So, so, don't, so don't, you know, hide in isolation. But here's, here's five thoughts and then we'll worship. Number one is, and again, this is no specific order. So just, you know, take as these apply to you. Number one, don't make marriage an idol. Whether you're married, your spouse, do not make your spouse an idol. Do not have expectations that that guy can be Jesus. He cannot. Do not make expectations that that girl is going to be the, the savior of your soul. She cannot. She's sinful. He's sinful just like you. And when we put that, that person as our idol, it'll crush them. And it'll crush us. And don't singles make marriage an idol because it is a gift, but it's also, it's challenging at times. And don't make marriage an idol for the singles. Don't be like, well, you're 26. Any prospects? I have a cousin. He lives in Texas. You want me to send him your number? 
Don't try to marry off all the single people. Number one, they might not want to get married. It might be called a singleist. Number two, it might be a sensitive issue that they're praying for a spouse and God hasn't brought that spouse. And that could be wounding. We don't want to make that, oh, you're a real good Christian when you're married with two, two kids. That's the, that's the epitome of, of word. No. Can I remind you that the savior of the world was single, right? And he will be married one day to his bride, but it ain't yet, right? And so we want to, we want to keep marriage, we want to honor marriage, but it's not our idol, and if you're single and you're like, man, I, I want to be married, you keep praying. And I'll, and I'll say what William Cain used to say six, seven years ago. And he probably stole it from somebody too. But if you're single and you want to find a spouse, here's what you do. All right, you can go to christianmingle.com. That's fine. That's, just, that's a side note. But you run hard after Jesus. You serve Jesus. You walk with Jesus in your work. You serve here, get in the community. And once in a while, as you're running hard after the Lord, you look up to your right and look up to your left, see who's running with you. And you, that's, that's the one you want to marry or at least pursue or see if they're interested. That doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, guys, sometimes we get a little over spiritual, like, well, I'm godly. I'm just so godly. And you, you can be godly and take a shower and cut your hair too. Take care of yourself. Put on some old spice and change your sheets once in a while and cut your hair too, right? Take care of yourself. But godliness is important, obviously. So is not being, living with your mom when you're 65 years old and, you know, uh, having her do your laundry for you, okay? Be a, a, grow up a little bit too, but be godly. But that's what you do. And if God brings that person that time, great. And if he's calling you to singleness, praise God. It's a gift. Here's the second one. Divorce is an idea that grows over time, just like all sin. Start small and it gets big. No one goes down the altar and, said, and, and thinking, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I can always, you know, I can always, you know, eject in three or four years if things don't work out or if they gain weight or lose hair or didn't get the job that I want. We can always, no one does that. They walk down the aisle thinking, this is the greatest person on the face of the earth, save the Lord Jesus. And then five years later, they're the worst person. Why? Because sin is a hardening effect and it's a slow leak, Right? And so one of the questions you should ask if you're married is, where's my marriage fading? Where, where is it, what are, where am I letting it coast? Is there a sin you're engaged in that will bring crisis into this relationship five years from now, 10 years from now? Maybe not be on the radar now, but it will be as it grows. When you start saying things like, well, I don't have to forgive them until they apologize. I don't have to love them if they're not gonna love me. I don't have to pursue them if they're not gonna pursue me. When you start using that language, there's some hardening going on. We need to own that. We need to get ahead of that, right? And ask God to start softening. Third thing, oneness takes a lot of work, but here's three things that need to be a part of your pursuit of oneness. Sacrifice, time, and hope. Jesus sacrifices himself for his bride so, there could be, so we could be one. That means laying down preferences, laying down rights, laying down the right to be right, right? That, that's what we do. We, we lay down ourselves for our spouse. That's a, it's a constant call. Marriage is a call to death. It is. It's a call to death to self. Till death do you part. Where you are giving yourself for your bride. It takes time. It takes time. If you neglect something, if you have a plant, some of you should never have a plant because you buy a plant and you never water the plant. It's dead in a month, right? 
Well, if you don't put water and put time and effort into that plant, it will not grow. The same is true of our marriages. If there's not time and effort put in, pray with your spouse. Date your spouse. Talk to your spouse. Time, otherwise that'll die. And, and every marriage needs hope. It just does. If Jesus can reconcile the world to himself, then your marriage can be reconciled and restored, right? If he can reconcile a lost world to himself, we all need that hope. That's what the gospel brings, It's hope. Two more. Uh, recognize fourth that marriages change, that people change, right? You will go through, if God tarries, at least four or five different marriages in your marriage. What I mean by that is this, there's that honeymoon marriage, right? That's that exciting passion. We live off of, you know, ramen noodles and love, right? And that eventually, ramen noodles and love ain't enough. We need a house. But then there's the marriage with little kids. And then there's the marriage with teenagers, which is like marriage. And then there's the marriage with kids in college. And then there's the empty nester marriage. And then there's the gift marriage of your grandchildren marriage, which is like the reward for everything, right? And those are different marriages. They just are. And it's important for you to know that going in because I often hear, well, he's not the same as he used to be. Uh, yeah, he was 22 and made $12 an hour. You hope he's not the same, right? Yeah, of course. No one said you were gonna stay the same. What we said was we're gonna be together until death do us part. And yeah, he's gonna change and she's gonna change. Our, our opinions are gonna change and our passions may change. That's the whole point of covenant. It's like, I adapt and I change with, and there's danger when one person is saying, they gotta change, I'm not gonna change. That's danger zone. Because we all need to change, constantly. We're all adapting, right? And so recognize that going in. And the last one is this. Good marriages thrive in community. Community. And we say this a lot, but it's important. Because your sin is blinding you. I'm just telling you. Because you think you're right, and your spouse thinks they're right. And they probably are, and you probably are, but there's things that you can't see because you're sinful, and you won't listen to that person because you see her flaws or his flaws, and what you need is people from outside to say, y'all both crazy. <laughs> that, you can, that you can listen to, that, will, uh, that you trust, that will be honest. Not just your buddies who go to the Georgia game, that's great. You need people who say, dude, the way you talk to your wife back there, you need to watch that. Or, honey, the way you, you dishonor your husband, you know, behind his back, is just, that's not helpful. You need people to tell you the truth so that you will change and be shaped into the image of Christ. And if you're in isolation, you're gonna, you're gonna struggle. And, and that's why we have community groups. That's why we have, you know, people that will meet with you. That's what you need. If you're single, you need to date in community. I see it all the time. These guys with his buddies, this girl's with her, her buddies, and they, they meet, and then they just abandon their buddies and their friends, and they're only with each other every night a week, watching When Harry Met Sally, and then the next night, it's, you know, you've got mail, and the next night, sleepless in Seattle, and we're on the couch at 1130 at night, and we're struggling with purity. Yeah, no doubt. You're watching When Harry Met Sally at 11 o'clock at night in your apartment with nobody calling you out. You need to date in community so that she's like, hey, man, he's, he treats you great, or hey, he's a knucklehead. Be careful. I heard he's dated everybody in the church already, right? You, you just need that. I'm not saying you should never go on a date alone, but I am saying you need to be in community, whether you're married, whether you're single, because that's how we keep each other accountable. We encourage each other. We point each other towards Christ. 
All right, that's a lot. I've gone long, but that's what I get at third service. Sorry. But here's, again, the point. Marriage is precious in the sight of God. It's a high calling. And some of us today just need to be reminded of that. And so maybe go home and say, how can we pursue oneness, Sonny? How can we pursue oneness? How can I model the love of the gospel? How can I model the respect that the church has for her savior? How can I, how can we point these kids that God's given us to Christ? And if we're single, God, that's what I wanna be one day if that's your will. So lead me into that direction. We're praying that for our kids. We're praying that for our grandkids. There's so much. Or if God hasn't blessed you with kids that you can be helping others and pointing them to that. I don't know. I know there's something here for everybody, right? And so we just ask that the spirit of God would illumine that to you. And again, if there's been failure, this is why Jesus died on a cross for your sins. It's not so that you could sit in guilt and shame for the rest of your life. Though your sin be as scarlet, it should be whiter than snow. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. If, if you failed in your marriage, if you failed in your parenting, whatever, you're not a second-class Christian. You are a son, you are a daughter of the king. That's how he sees you, right? And you need to remember that. You need to know that. And when the enemy attacks you, and he will, this is a, the devil wants to divide marriages, y'all. Why? Why does the devil want to divide marriages? Because he hates what God loves, He hates marriages, he hates families, he hates churches, he hates Israel, he attacks these things, right? This is why he does it, because it's it's precious to God. This is why we fight. This is why we, that we stay close. This is why we cling to the gospel, that that Christ died for sinners, um, among whom I am the chief sinner, right? And that is our hope. So let me pray, and we'll respond through singing. Father, a lot there, a lot unsaid, but we know this, that you were good, that you have modeled in your son what love really is. And, and if we get nothing else out of this today, may that be precious in our sight. That we, when we were sinners, were pursued and rescued by the Savior. That we are your bride. And even though we're uh, not a pure bride often, you will purify, you will, be, you will complete what you began, this good work in us. We look to that as our hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand as we sing.